And please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 47, right there at the end of Luke chapter 19. If you're using the Bibles in the benches, you can find that on page 1,632. 1,632, Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 47, and reading through chapter 20 and verse 26. This is God's holy word. Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Now tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And he replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves. And they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated him shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, Well, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, and let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, 
and astonished by his answer, they became silent. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, you've been following along this story in the Gospel of Luke, but it is clear that by now things are getting quite serious. Jesus is in the temple and he is preaching the same message that he has been preaching all along. And presumably in the temple he's also performing the miraculous works that he has been performing all along to accompany and authenticate his teaching. He is saying that the Spirit of the Lord is on him and that he is preaching good news to the poor. He is proclaiming freedom from, uh, for the prisoners. He is preaching recovery of sight for the blind. He is talking about releasing the oppressed. He's talking about the glorification which is coming. He's talking about the time when all of the sins and the consequences of sins will be completely wiped away. He's talking about people, whether they have a little bit of blindness or a little bit of sickness, or whether they are completely lame and diseased or even dead, will be raised from the dead. He is talking about this happening because of the grace which He is showing as God the Son to His people. He is talking to people who are oppressed and alienated in society and telling them that they will be satisfied because of the work that He is doing. And if anybody could doubt His power to do it, He would display a little foretaste, wouldn't He, of the glories that were coming. He would even raise the dead and heal the sick. And give to the people who were poor what they needed. But what's getting serious is that these unbelieving religious rulers, instead of embracing Jesus and His message, are treating Him as if He has come to bring the curse itself. It's getting serious because Jesus is a serious threat to their own pride. A serious threat to their own vainglory. A serious threat to their riches. When He comes into the temple and drives out the sellers who are taking advantage of God's people in the name of being priests, which we saw last week, He is threatening their prestige. And it's more serious now because they humored Him all along, didn't they? I mean, they were willing because He was showing some miraculous works. They were willing because He was popular to put up with what He was doing. They were willing for a time to try and draw Him into their circle. But it's getting to the point where it's either us or Him. I mean, if the people continue to follow Him and continue to hear Him castigate us for our self-righteousness, we are going to lose our power, we are going to lose our money, we are going to lose our fame. We are no longer going to be able to harbor our own personal sins and condemn everybody else for their own weaknesses if we allow this to continue. And they can deal with a certain 
measure of fanaticism that rises up. You know, there's a lot of sectarian teachers in that day, the Sanhedrin would have said. There's a lot of guys that come and go and claim either to be the Messiah or claim to be a prophet of God. And they do something miraculous. Of course, never, nobody ever really witnessed it. But enough people hear about the story and they follow somebody out into the desert. And eventually, over time, those people fall away. But that wasn't happening with Jesus. Because he continued to demonstrate his power. And he continued to solidify his following. That was a threat to the establishment. And they had had enough. You see that in verse 7. The chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. It was not any longer considering whether or not they could rope him in or accept him or deal with him or marginalize him, but he needed to die. There was too much at stake. But of course, as you can tell from our section of the story this morning, they can't kill him right now, can they? Why can't they kill him now? Well, if they kill him right now, the people would kill them. He is so popular, and he is demonstrating mercy in ways that they have never seen, that if they dare to lay hands on him, they will be stoned by the people for their own faithlessness to the nation. And on top of that, if they kill Jesus just outright, and the people rebel against them and kill them, there is going to be an uproar in Jewish society, which is going to get the attention of the Roman rulers, who for their part just wish that these strange Jewish people and this strange Jewish Sanhedrin with all their religious, political, mixed laws and all their strange gods that they believe in. For our part, just keep the tax money coming in, says Rome, and keep your people quiet, and you handle all your own religious and political matters, please. And if there's an uprising in that community, the Roman rulers are going to come in, and they are going to take away the power of the Sanhedrin and the sovereignty of the Jewish people. So they can't kill Jesus right now, but he's got to die. So their strategy, as you've seen in these verses, is to discredit Jesus publicly, first among the Jews, in order to turn his own people against him. So that at least the whole Jewish nation could be united in saying that this man had to die. Then maybe the Romans would be willing to put up with that death. Look at verse 48 there. The end of chapter 19. It says, Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Well, the only way to kill him is to get the people off being hung up on his words. We have to discredit his authority. Look at verse 6 of chapter 20 there. It says, If we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So somehow we've got to get them off the track. We've got to discredit his authority. Verse 19 is the same. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So the key is, in the mind of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes, the key of this, the key for the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus is to discredit him first among the people. That's what they're going to do. And they, have, they try and do it two ways. Their first tactic is to capitalize on their own people's lack of clarity about who Jesus is. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus had been going around performing these miracles, proclaiming the gospel message, but he didn't always, did he, come out and say as clearly as he could have who he really was. Right? I mean, sometimes he'd heal somebody, and then they would 
ask him who he was, and he'd tell it clearly to them. He said, but don't go and tell it to the other people. And sometimes when people would ask him direct questions about who he was, he would answer in sort of a cryptic way, wouldn't he? Now, why did he do that? Well, because he knew that if he identified himself clearly, those who believed would forcibly take him and install him as the Messianic king. But deliberately, all along, he was sort of enigmatic. He was cryptic about revealing who he really was in its fullness. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers, knew this. That even his followers were not always clear about who he was. And they see that lack of clarity. They want to capitalize on that and question his authority and test his claims. In the first two verses there, this is the plan they come up with. One day as he was teaching the people in the temples, the chief priests, now I want you to notice, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders. Now the way that's worded indicates to us that this is an official delegation of the Sanhedrin which is the highest religious ruling body in Israel at the time. And they came together in council and said, we have to try and discredit this man. So this was deliberate. And they came in delegation to Jesus. They come up to him and they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? In other words, Jesus, come out and say it. Say it, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. Say it that you claim to be God because we are confident enough that if you declare that to be the case, the people will hear that you are blaspheming. Yes, you have your followers, but Jesus, they're not so clear on the claims that we know you're making about yourself. And if you make those claims, they'll rise up against you. So how does he respond? I mean, you can see the conundrum that Jesus himself is in now, can't you? Because if he tells them who gave him this authority, I have the authority as the Son of God, it comes from my Father who sent me. If he's clear about that right now, then he's playing into the trap of these religious rulers. On the other hand, if he denies his claims, then they get exactly what they wanted anyway. And he's exposed to be a liar and a false prophet and nobody will follow him. So what does he say? Verse 3, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Why does he bring up John's baptism? Well, it's because the people, the very same people who were following Jesus, but were a little bit unclear about the claims that he was making at this point about himself, were very clear in what they thought of John the baptizer. They believed that John was a prophet and there was no question about it. They knew what John claimed. They believed that John spoke from God and therefore what John said was true and should be followed. There was no doubt in the people's minds. So Jesus is getting at it the back way and saying, you know, I'm telling you where I'm getting my authority. It's from God. But the way that he's answering it is to point to John where people are clear in their minds. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or men? They discuss it among themselves. They say, verse 5, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Remember, because what they're hoping is that the people will turn against Jesus. But if they acknowledge that John's baptism was from heaven, that John was a prophet, and John pointed forward to Jesus Christ and said, follow him, I am unworthy even to untie his sandals. 
then the people are going to turn. But if we don't acknowledge that John is a prophet, the people are going to kill us because that, they don't doubt. So he's answering these fools according to their own folly. If we say from men, verse 6, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So of course they answer, we don't know where it is from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now don't be deceived. When Jesus answered them with that question, they knew exactly what he was saying. They already knew what his claims were about who he was. They were just hoping that the people who weren't quite clear on those claims could be led astray and drawn away from Him. So Jesus answers their question, but in a way that will not make Him susceptible to being killed by the people, the people who are not ready to have Him say that He is the Messiah and come out just boldly and clearly in that way, claiming to be God the Son. So seeing that he will not let himself be discredited in the eyes of the followers, they try a different tactic. And that's what you find uh, down a ways in verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they send spies who pretend to be honest, hoping to catch him in something he said, so that they might what? Hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. Now they say, if we can't discredit him in the eyes of his own followers and of of the Jewish people, We can't persuade them. Maybe we can cause him to say something that will draw the ire of the Roman authorities directly. But even this is a subtle trick. Because they not only want Jesus to maybe say that the Jews shouldn't pay taxes, but you see, if he says that they should pay the taxes, you know what's on that denarius, on that coin? On one side is the picture of the emperor. On the other side of the picture of the coin is a picture of his mother, who was thought to be a goddess. And so what they're trying to get Jesus to do is either say, no, don't pay the Roman taxes, so the Roman governor comes in and arrests him and puts him to death for cutting off the the financial pipeline coming from the Jews, or... They want him to say, yeah, go ahead and participate in that blasphemous, idolatrous system. Go ahead and acknowledge by paying that tax that you believe that the Roman emperor's mother is a goddess. And then see, that will get the Jewish people to look at him and say, he ought to be stoned. So you see the trap that they're setting. What is his answer in this exchange? Well, look at that. Teacher, we know, look at how the language, they lay it on real thick in verse 21. We know that what you speak and teach is right, and how you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes? And he sees through their duplicity, and he says in verse 24, Show me the denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it, Caesar's. He says to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God." Now, do you see how that answer defends him against both groups that would go against him? I mean, to the Roman governor, if he said, say, said, hey, we asked Jesus if he should pay the tax, and he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, could they charge him with anything? No. He said, pay the taxes to them. And if they come to the Jews and say, well, he said to participate in the idolatry of this Roman money and paying the taxes. He's a blasphemer. 
No, they couldn't accuse him of that because he said, give to God what is God's. Clearly showing that Caesar and God are different. And all that Caesar cares about is getting his money. Now let me just mention about this verse. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's important that you understand it in this very narrow particular context. Jesus is not giving this statement to give you a full-orbed theology of government or taxation or the rest of it. He's answering a specific question which was designed to trip him up specifically against the Roman government or against the people. If you'd be accused of being a blasphemer by participating in this. And he answers in a certain way to defend himself against both of those attacks. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Brilliant. He is not a blasphemer. God is God. Caesar is not God. And give Caesar what he wants, says Jesus. It satisfies both concerns. And the people are turned away again. They're unable, verse 26, to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. They can't kill him. They can't kill him. He will not die on their terms and in their timing, will he? Right in the middle of these two attempts to discredit his authority and somehow get some part of the population against him so that he will die, he tells them a little parable. He tells them about a vineyard that was rented to some farmers and the owner went away for a long time and he continually sends to those workers his own servants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. But what continues to happen? Every servant that the master sends gets beaten and sent away. And finally the owner sends his son. And the workers on the farm kill the son, who is the heir, thinking that the inheritance will be theirs. And their judgment is spelled out in verse 16. He will come to kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. What's the story about? It's about Israel. It's about the Sanhedrin. It's about the office of religious authority in Old Testament Israel, where God gave His Old Covenant people to Israel. That was the Old Covenant nation. And all along He would send His prophets who were speaking the truth to the Israelite people and they would reject the prophets and they would put them to death. And he would send more prophets to speak the truth to them. And they would reject those prophets. And at last he would send the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The heir himself comes to his people. And Jesus is telling them, You are trying to kill me. You will not kill me until I lay down my own life. And then I will crush you. That's what verse 15 says. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? God the Father will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come to Old Covenant Israel, which commits the apostasy, the final apostasy of crucifying Jesus, and He will cut them off as the Old Covenant people. And He will give the covenant to the multinational church Made up of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Even the Jews who would humble themselves and believe, right? 
But anyone who stands against the Lord Jesus Christ will be broken to pieces. And if you fall on Him, you will be crushed. Now it's pretty amazing that the teachers of the law in verse 19 and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Him immediately because they knew He had spoken this parable against them. But they can't kill Him. They can't kill Him because He's going to lay down His life for His sheep at His own time on His own terms. In Isaiah 5, the prophet was thinking about ahead of time by the power of the Holy Spirit the judgment on Israel. He says, I will sing for the one that I love. I will sing a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside and he dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out the wine press as well. He looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only a bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad grapes? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, said the prophet. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delights. But when he looked for justice, he saw bloodshed. And when he looked for righteousness, he heard cries of distress. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. And the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus tell the parable about the vineyard knew that he was speaking about Israel and about them. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice and the Holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. And to these religious rulers in 70 AD when the Roman armies came in and they destroyed that city. That city was no longer the covenant people of God. So what about your stance toward Christ? You're on one side or the other because things got pretty serious. You either find your life in His death. You either believe that He laid down His own life in His own timing at the hands of wicked men to pay for your sins. You either humble yourself and set aside all of your vainglory and pride and thinking of yourself as better than anybody else. Or you stand against Him. And may God give us grace to rejoice and trust in the stone that the builders rejected who has become the capstone, our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down His life on His own accord to pay the penalty for our sins. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sustaining the Lord Jesus Christ through all of his trials and all of his distress. We thank you that he displayed the great wisdom 
uh, to confound his enemies so that he would die on his own timing. And uh, we thank you that he had his uh, people in mind so that they wouldn't know too much and then turn against him before they could see the fullness of his uh, truth and his glory. And uh, we thank you that that gospel message has been passed down to us. We pray that you'd humble us. Help us never to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to see that our life is found in his death. And as also Isaiah the prophet said, the sheep will graze as in their own pasture, and the lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Thank you that we have benefited by the ruins of the rich who sought to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you in Christ's name alone. Amen.